0: No matter how many of us gather, it is always oh, such a joy to meet with one another, isn't it? I was thinking that when we were all of us just standing praying and then praising together. That's going to be, what's that going to be like, you know, when we do see him face to face? Blows my mind. Blows my mind here. So, you know, what it's going to be like then is just going to be uh, too good. Um, before I get into the, the meat, as it were, is this microphone too close to me, by the way? Is it sounding? Hang on, if I go... Is that, bet, is that better? No. What about, what about now? No, okay, I'm going to move it back. All right, fine. Um, Cole had uh, a word this week from from the Lord, and he wanted me to uh, read it out for us. So it's from Habakkuk, which is... Um, why he felt led to share it this morning. And it's Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation." We have a living God uh, with us, and proof of that is um, some of the verses that Sharon read out. I didn't know what verses Sharon was going to read out, and yet as I was thinking and praying about how to prepare for this, I I felt God say that I needed to start with a verse in Jeremiah now I'm going to get to it but one of the verses that Sharon wrote out was in Isaiah 46 and he says remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors remember the former things of old Okay. now just remember that remember the former things of old now this week as I was preparing the Lord said to me I believe start with this call And this is Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient way, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls." And the emphasis that I wanted to have this morning as I began was that actually that is the call of God on the people of God all the time. The Lord is constantly and has been constantly in history coming to his people and saying stand at the roads and look, ask for the ancient ways and see its goodness and walk in it. Remember. Remember things that have gone so that you may walk in the Lord's way. We have a God who speaks. We have a God who speaks to us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're a forgetful people. So often... All through scripture, what we see is God's call to a forgetful people. That's why time and time again, he says to us, remember, come back, return to the ancient way. Because we are a forgetful people. As Christ was given the Eucharist, what we now call the Eucharist, and he breaks the bread, and then he gives the wine to his disciples. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because he knew. He knew that going forward we needed to remember because we were going to forget. And note also that both in the verse and when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's not just a mental Act. Okay? It's ask for the ancient ways in Jeremiah and walk in them. When it's connected with the Eucharist, it's do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Take. Participate in me. And so, remembrance biblically is not just, or returning to the Lord is not just a mental act, it's not just a disposition. That we have. It includes the whole of life being reorientated and lived in light of the risen Jesus. That is what the call of God is for all of us this morning. And I want to start with that. Brothers and sisters, beloved, walk in the ancient way today. And I thought this was particularly applicable to our topic uh, at hand, generosity in all things. Because if I'm honest, we've perhaps in this area more than others lost sight of what it means to live in the good way. We've lost sight in this particular area perhaps of what it means to live in God's ancient paths. Generosity in all things. I want to read to you a couple of sections of Acts, and then another section from a book that some of you might know called the Didache. Acts 2, right at the end, and we should all know this, (laughs) because we've been going through Acts. Talking of the early church, and generous hearts the end of Acts 4 now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And the passage goes on and talks about how Barnabas, the son of encouragement, does that very thing, sells for the benefit of Others. Let me read you just one more uh, text. The Didache, by the way, is an early church document that's probably written anywhere between the 50 AD to 100 AD. That's, that gives you a time um, scale. It was used as a manual for early catechumens as they were preparing for baptism. Okay. Someone who seeks to be catechized into the Christian faith someone who has taught the essentials of the Christian faith as they are then prepared for baptism. Okay. Good question, Dave. And the didache just means the teaching by the way, uh, the teaching of the 12 teaching, something like that. Quote: Give to anyone that asks without looking for repayment, for it is the father's pleasure that we should share his gracious bounty with all men. A giver who gives freely as the commandment directs is blessed. No fault can be found in him. Give without hesitating and without grumbling, and you will see those, and you will see whose generosity will, uh, will requite you. Uh, respond to you, another way of saying that. Never turn away from the needy. Share all your possessions with your brother or sister, and do not claim that anything is your own. If you and he are joint participators in things immortal how much more so in things that are mortal. The eternal, then, in the early church, plays a pivotal role in how we deal and think about that which we have now. Let me just read that last bit again. If you and he or she are joint participators in the things immortal, if we are united in... Christ together, how much more so in things that are mortal? Brothers and sisters, how do we become churches like these? How do we become a church like we've just seen in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and that continued on into that first century and beyond? How do we become a church which does not just speak of generosity as something which belongs to the good way, but is seen to be living and radiating and truly, therefore, remembering the ancient way? Now, they're the main questions I want to focus on this morning. See, I'm only just getting started. <laughs> and the reason why I'm limiting it to those sorts of questions is because I haven't got all the time in the world to go through what scripture says about generosity Um, well I have but I'd I'd have to do another sermon to explain how we're always bound by our watches before everyone will probably be happy with me doing that Um, how do we answer those questions how does scripture answer those questions in various ways but I want to focus just on one this morning okay just on one. The disciples' whole way of thinking and living in the early church was shaped and formed by the incarnation of Jesus. Okay, that's all I want us to focus on this morning. And if you've heard me preach before, you know I say that word a lot: incarnation. Okay? It was completely formed and shaped by the coming of and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ everything in life was then seen through the lens of the incarnation and scripture bids us to come and do the same this morning when it came to ethical decisions which had to be made in life how the church was to conduct herself in the world it was always the incarnation that shaped her thinking If you've got a Bible with you, just turn briefly to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a beautiful example of a New Testament uh, way of, of thinking about generosity. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia... For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints." Did you catch the logic of what's going on in that passage? Their severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, overflowed into generosity. Affliction and poverty overflowed into generosity. Normally, in our minds, we think that surplus and Good circumstances flow into generosity, that makes sense, but poverty, affliction, overflowed into generosity, and what's more, they begged, the word is very strong, they begged for the chance to partake, to give. At this point, what's going on in Paul is Paul was coming to the Corinthian church and he's setting the Macedonians up as an example because at the time they were all getting, um, Paul was collecting a collection for the church in Jerusalem. The Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians, had pledged a gift, but it hadn't yet been sent. And so Paul was reminding the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians that they should really follow through with what they said. But the Macedonians were poor. They were afflicted, and yet they begged for the chance to contribute. That is otherworldly thinking, isn't it? Paul, in a few verses later, in that same chapter, exhorts this. For you know, this is verse 9, for you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So, in Paul's mind, what makes sense of the Macedonian church's giving and the generosity, what's underpinning that, is the incarnation. It's the divine giving of the Son for the life of the world. Because we know that we can't take Paul to be meaning something else, which is that Jesus was actually quite materially well off, and he went around Galilee just passing out freebies to those who had less money than him. That can't be what he's saying in that passage. He writes the same thing very differently for those of you who um, know your your scripture in Philippians 2. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Do nothing, this is verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, do we, as we look around, consider one another as better than ourselves? Let each of you look not only to his own interests or her interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's not asking the Philippians to do something which they cannot do because they have access to this grace, because they partake in Christ Jesus. Who? Who? earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so both the Corinthian verse and the one in Philippians they're operating with the same mentality in the Corinthian context Paul uses the incarnation to specifically urge his readers to commit financially okay to to give in that way in the Philippian context, he uses the incarnation to urge his readers to consider one another better than themselves. He's doing the same thing. For the eternal Son, who was and is and always will be God, took on flesh and became man and died for the life of the world. The Son of God gave his very self for the other. Paul's mind says that therefore, brothers and sisters, walk in that ancient path. Walk in his way. The the deep theology, the incarnational theology is giving birth not to abstract truth but to concrete action. (laughs) Yeah? It's giving birth to a wealth of generosity to all that are around them. We could summarize it perhaps Like this, giving generously in the early church, then was driven by and undergirded by a solid understanding and sustained theological reflection upon the generous gift of God in the incarnation of Christ. And further, it led to the calling of the disciples to follow Christ in giving up what we have for the other. It led to living out the love that we see in the incarnation. As John notes in 1 John two six, whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The incarnation is not a nice tale to tell ourselves, to make us feel good. And than to go away throughout the week, perhaps, and forget about. The coming of the King changed all of reality itself. All of reality itself was changed when the eternal Son put on flesh. It's not just a tale for encouragement, it's the generous outpouring of the love of God for us all sitting here. Brothers and sisters, you are covered by the generous love flowing in Christ to you by the Spirit. Do you know that? Do you own that? You are covered in such beautiful, beautiful love. where the world sought to divide by cultural, religious, and gender distinctions, Christ came and said, I am yours and you are mine. When the world placed honour on the powerful, the ones who were victorious by fear, Christ entered into that which was his own. He touched lepers, he raised the dead, cast out demons, and laid his life down for the many. His victory was through suffering. When the world turned from God, he extended his arms to the world. When they rejected him, he loved them. When they said no, he said yes. Brothers and sisters, we cannot miss this point. If we do not see the incarnation as the generous gift of God to us and to all the world, then we will never, we will never be moved to walk in the ancient good path. Okay? Okay. We will never do. There's no point somebody coming up and talking about generosity and saying you must give this or that. And I'm going to go on to that in a minute because I'm being intentionally quite vague. Okay? And that's, that's got purpose in it. Because what I really want us to grasp this morning is to be presented with the generous love of God in Christ for the world and with you. And that we would be so caught up like the early church in the incarnation that we would then be moved to walk in that ancient way now perhaps at this point you might say, well hang on God gives us good things to enjoy for ourselves and I do need to take care of myself but I'm not really sure whether God's actually calling for what it sounds like he's he's calling for. Well, let me make the case slightly stronger. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians how Paul spoke of his posture towards other people? If you turn to 1 Corinthians 9... And in verse 23, you will find something quite astounding. Verse 19, sorry. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So after this, Paul goes on to speak about how he gives and becomes like all so that he may win all, yeah? But the important point I want us to focus on is the fact of how Paul there is talking about his freedom. In Paul's mind, it is freedom from death, from slavery, the devil and sin, and freedom for god and for the very life of the world okay if we only talk about freedom as breaking of change which of course is true we're only talking about one half of what biblical freedom is biblical freedom is not just freedom from because if it was then what we would have is a therapeutic gospel And we really do not want a therapeutic gospel because that reduces God to one made in our own image. He is a physician, but He is not one made in our own image. Moreover, if it is just about breaking chains, then what do you do when all your chains are broken? What becomes of God? It turns out that God was just somebody you wanted to use to get over certain things you realise were quite negative in life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is freedom from sin. The gospel is freedom from death and the devil. But it is freedom for God. And it is freedom for the very life of those who sit around us now and for the world It is freedom from and freedom for. In 1 John 3, we read this. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Are we taking those words seriously? Do we take the concrete action of God in Christ seriously, the ancient path seriously any of us close our heart against a brother or a sister, then for John, it's causing him worry to the point where you doubt whether the love of God even abides in that brother or sister. You might say to me again, or oh, hang on. And this is what I was talking about a minute ago. You're being quite vague. What what do you mean? You're not telling me how much I should give or, or how I should give or what I should give. And like I said a minute ago, that is intentional. That is intentional. And you'd be right. I'm not telling you that. And so how do... I answer those questions. How does scripture answer those questions? Well, my answer would be this, and I think this is scripture's answer as well. To do that would be to miss what we have just seen in scripture. As soon as we talk about, you have to give 10%, you have to give 20%, and so on. We've deviated from what is vital And my bet is we've probably deviated and retreated back to appeasing our conscience more than anything else. It becomes, how do I feel like I'm doing in the Christian life? It becomes all about the self, once again. And that's not to say that if we have certain percentages we give, they're necessarily bad. But if that's all we're after, then we've gone amiss, we've gone astray again. Okay, Because the verses which we've just gone through all speak to us about the generous love of God in Christ for the world, which gives the basis for an absolutely radical way of treating the other. And in 1 John, as we've just seen, we are called not just to give 10% and for our conscience to be appeased, We are called not just to give when it is comfortable. We are told to lay down our lives for one another. And that seems to make slight nonsense of saying, I'm just going to do this or I'm just going to do that. This seems to call us to something far deeper and more meaningful. Meaningful. We need to be so careful that we are not just a church who speaks generosity, who talks generosity, and who does not follow Christ in his ancient way of being generous in concrete action to one another. You want to know love? We need to be looking at one another's lives. <laughs> That's what First John would say. Because those who say they follow him should walk in the way in which he walked. Are we as a family thinking about those who we could offer hospitality to? That's part of a generous heart. As I said, I'm not just purely talking about finance and money, okay? This is one of the things that often happens. We'll hear a talk on generosity and automatically we think it's just about money it is but it's not just restricted to that so don't mishear me are we seeking to be hospitable to one another if you're married has marriage become something that is just the routine or is it a context where you try and outdo one another in generous love Let me speak very frankly. Brothers and sisters, are there people within even our own family who abide in Christ that we close our hearts off to and that we purposely perhaps avoid or we purposely don't invite round? Are our minds founded firmly in the incarnation of Jesus Are we praying that we might be a people who give freely because we have freely received? Is our posture that of Jesus and of Paul and of John and of the early church, or is it of the world? Ignatius of Antioch, one of the apostolic fathers, the fathers who came and who knew the apostles, so he lives around 100 AD, so on. He said this, Don't have Christ on your lips and the world in your heart. Don't have Christ on your lips and the world in your heart. But there are ways that the world seeps in. Because we're a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people. In light of all we've seen, and I haven't even begun to touch on the the trajectory of the Old Testament, God's heart for the needy, Isaiah 58. You know, this could be a very long talk. Okay? We haven't even began to uncover the well of God's heart and his generosity and his call for his people to radiate that generosity. We haven't even, be- we haven't scratched the surface. Okay? I want to give us some... Just some ways, some symptoms, perhaps, um, which emerge, I think, in our hearts when the world has crept in. Okay? And I speak these to my... This, the, this list comes, so you know, as me excavating my own heart. Okay? This comes from me wrestling myself with the fact that I recognise still that my heart doesn't radiate the generous love of Christ. So some of these may not apply to you. I have a feeling they will, but these are some ways, perhaps. If you sense these in your heart, then I, I think the world has crept in. First, there's four of them. We have a fear that we shall lack if we are generous. We have a fear that we shall lack if we are generous. And in so doing, we've forgotten that in Christ we have all we need. We forget that God promised that He is always with us and that He will provide for us when we seek His kingdom first. We forget, furthermore, our value. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I take it then that in times when we are anxious about whether or not God will give, when we forget his provision and his promise to provide, that we doubt our value beloved do not doubt god's provision and his goodness and do not doubt your value the sun was sent for you the sun was sent for you so that's the first one we have a fear that we shall lack if we're generous the second we have an envy of others that stirs in our hearts quietly and begins to shape the way we think about that which we have and in so doing we look past the provision of God in our own lives considering them really nothing filled with a deep want to own that which does not belong to us, in other words we forget to be filled with thankfulness for all that we have and we effectively turn round to the God who was given to us and say, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. I want to do some more thinking on envy because I think, actually, it is something that has the potential to breed all sorts of hate and bitterness in a soul. It does. I need to do more work in that in my own life. And I leave that with you. As well, when we're filled with the envy of others, we're tempted to boast in those things. They become the things, in other words, that we um, that we yearn we yearn for those things and their glory. They're the things that we want to brag about when we envy. Paul says in one Corinthians one. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that human beings may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written in Jeremiah 9.23, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. When we envy, we forget where we're supposed to be boasting. We seek the glory of another thing. We seek to brag about another thing. And our bragging is supposed to be only about Christ Jesus. That's the second one. We're filled with envy. Third one. We're filled with a possessive attitude to all that we own and have. And in so doing, we forget that our very lives are not our own. Jesus says in John uh, fifteen five, Without me, you can do nothing. We forget the words of Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. We forget that every good and perfect gift is from above, as James says. And that freely we have received all of these things. And therefore, freely, we should have the ability to give as others have need of them. Our very lives are not our own. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says that. Don't you know, brothers and sisters, that you were bought with a price? John Chrysostom Uh, an early church theologian once said that parents should um, seek to uh, get rid from the lips of their children a four letter word can you guess what it is? Any takers? Nearly there. Kavalani got it. Mine. That we should seek to get rid from the lips of our children that word Mine. Even this morning, my own kids came in fighting, being so frustrated at the injustice that somebody, another of their siblings, was using their toy. It's mine. To which I politely and lovingly encouraged them to reconsider that it really is theirs. (laughs) In an ideal world, perhaps. Um... Beloved, remember that what is given to us is not ours, but all is God's. Yeah? yeah. This seems to happen as well when, um, when we take great pride in our work, which is a good thing, by the way. To, to do what we do well for the Lord glorifies him. Yeah. And yet that seems to sometimes come with the proviso, oh, that, that which I earn therefore automatically becomes mine. That's wrong. If... If we're thinking that, we've gone wrong in our incarnational theology. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters. Lastly, so that number three was possessive attitude towards what we have. Number four, our love of the self overrides our want to love for the other. And in so doing, we forget The prayer that Jesus prayed for us. In John 17, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what Jesus is talking about there, he's reflecting on the love um, that he experienced before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in a loving relationship. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father through the Spirit. Yeah? Yeah? Then he says that creation then was a result of God wanting us to be brought in to that love. Okay, Creation was, a, uh, was for so that we could experience that love, being lost in the love of another. But when we turn from the self inflates, okay? The self begins to take the position of God in the life, okay? And therefore the world becomes all about meeting my needs rather than it being about all of us being brought into the divine relationship of the Trinity and imaging that love all over creation, Because that was what Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden. The calling of the human by God to the world is to image him. To go forth, create, do all things in a way in which the love of God is demonstrated. When we turn from that, we're rejecting that. The self becomes all and we image ourselves. The self becomes the main driver. And as a result... The self enlarges and enlarges and squeezes God out and it squeezes others out. There are many more ways the world gets into our hearts. These are just four that I've reflected upon these last couple of weeks. Be watchful, brothers and sisters. Be watchful. I want to finish with... A, um, a description of the early church by an early philosopher called Aristides of Athens. And he's addressing the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And he's trying to convince Hadrian that Christianity is true. Okay? And he basically paints a picture of how wonderful the Christians are. Okay? This is what he says. They love one another. They esteem widows. They rescue orphans from any who ill-treat them. Whoever has wealth gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a brother. Whenever one of their number who was poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, contributes to the burial." And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. If there is any among them that is poor and needy and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to have food that they then supply to a needy one. That was the description of a church seeking to live the incarnation of Jesus Christ out into a world who desperately needs. Could people describe us as such a church? May the peace of Christ be with you all. Can I pray for us? Shed your light on us, O Lord, that being rid of the darkness of our hearts, we may come into the true light, which is Christ, the light of the world, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Lord God, would you so change our hearts that we would lay our lives down for the other, that we would yearn and run and remember your ancient path and would walk it and live it until you call each one of us home. Amen.